For the week of Wednesday, May 2nd, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. Today, 7th District Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She has recently launched her re-election campaign, and she joins us to discuss what she's done in her first term in office and to share a little of her philosophy about being a representative. Every time people come into my office, I say, welcome to your office, because it's their office. It's not my office. I just happen to sit there and occupy the seat right now, but only if it's benefiting and responding to and answering the needs of the district. We will also have our weekly dose of good news. That's all coming up, so stay with us. One of the biggest rising stars in the Democratic Party in 2018 is Washington's own Pramila Jayapal. She is representative for the 7th Congressional District, which includes most of Seattle. She serves on the House Judiciary Committee, the Subcommittee on Immigration and Border Security, and she is the first vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She has also just launched her re-election campaign, and she joins us now on the show to talk about it. Congresswoman Jayapal, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It's always great to be with the Indivisibles. <laughs> well, and also I should mention you're home this week, so welcome home. Thank you. It is, uh, it, you know, I just love the district. I love being home. I love talking to people. I love being reminded of what an incredible place I live in and I get to represent. Well, you do have a town hall coming up that we will get to in a second so that people can come and talk to you in person. But I should mention that you just had your first re-election campaign event uh, a couple of weeks ago. I imagine you're feeling pretty fired up. I am feeling very fired up. It was a great event. We had several hundred people there. And, um, you know, and I think what I have always said, what I ran on is the idea that this isn't, has never been about me. It's always been about we, as ungrammatically correct as that is. (laughs) It's really the, the notion that, you know, we all have to work together to make a difference. You can't just elect somebody and then say, okay, my job is done. And, you know, a lot of the work that we're doing now is, first of all, I want to make sure I win, and I want to make sure I win with a big margin so that it's clear that my district supports the bold progressive policies that I've been pushing in Congress. Um, But I also want to make sure that um, when I became an elected uh, official, I said that there were things I didn't like about the way campaigns were run before. And one of those things was that it was very episodic, and, and people just sort of came in when it was time for the election. We have kept an organizing infrastructure going. As you know, we've done a lot of work with Indivisibles um, in our state and across the country, and we've had organizers out there working on other races, and that's what we're going to do again this year. So, um, yes, we're going to reelect me, hopefully with a very big margin. I don't know who's running against me yet. But what I'm really interested in is making sure that I use this platform to bring in and train up as many volunteers and leaders as possible and that we take back the House. And there are several seats here in Washington that we're working on, but also um, seats across the country where I am trying to make sure we get strong, progressive um, folks of color, women, young people, LGBTQ folks elected um, to the House and that we have enough of a majority that we can really push, continue to push for our progressive ideas. And so um, we have to do work differently, and we need to make sure we're talking not only about the message, which is important, 
but the messenger and the tactics of really engaging people one-on-one, door knocking, field organizing, phone calls, town halls, all of those things. Well, I don't think we've ever seen a time, certainly not in our lifetimes, when people have been more engaged in the political process. I think everybody gets the message that this is not only an all-hands-on-deck moment, but this coming up is probably the most important election of our lifetimes. So I I think a message received on all of that. I want to talk about some of the things that you are going to be running on. I know that immigration issues are enormously important to you for personal reasons. Um, You yourself are one of a handful of uh, members of Congress who are, are... an immigrant. So I'd like to start there. Um, last Tuesday, a district court judge in D.C. ruled that the Trump administration had to allow current DACA recipients to be able to apply for work permits and to begin accepting new DACA applications, essentially restarting the program. But the judge stayed his ruling for 90 days so that the White House could appeal. So in the meantime, I'm wondering what you will be doing uh, on behalf of DREAMers. I know that you've talked previously about working on a bipartisan solution in Congress. The reality is we've we've actually been working on this um, for a long time, and it is personal to me. It's also a collective. I led the largest, started and led the largest immigrant advocacy organization in our state, and we worked with our partners around the country to get DACA instituted in the first place with the Obama administration when the DREAM Act failed um, in the Senate last time around. And so this has been a long-term struggle. I think that the, we've had a lot of successes in the in the sense that um, the majority of the American people, I think it's like 82 or 85 percent of Americans across the country, red and blue districts, yeah. uh, believe that there should be a permanent solution for undocumented dreamers. And that includes a path to citizenship. And so the judge's ruling was very important. But I think that the reality is that these are really temporary fixes um, that we hope the courts will stay with us and will continue to support the ability for DACA to continue. Um, but it is really, you know, Donald Trump who ended the DACA program and said that he wanted a permanent solution for Dreamers and that Congress should do their job and that he would sign anything bipartisan that came to him. And then, in fact, turned around and went right back on his word, had me- multiple bipartisan solutions brought to him, and he uh, essentially tanked all of them. And mm. So now we're in a situation where there are a number of bipartisan pieces of legislation. There's the, the DREAM Act. There's the um, there's another bill, the Heard Aguilar bill, that also offers a permanent solution for DREAMers. And we have been saying bring one of those to the floor or bring them all to the floor in a process that we call Queen of the Hill. Jeff Denham, a Republican from California, has sponsored a resolution to say just that. Bring these bills to the floor, multiple bills if you want. Even bring the terrible Republican Goodlatte proposal that they that they you know say is a solution that isn't a solution at all, um, and would be a disaster for this country, not just for Dreamers but for everybody. And so we say, bring them all to the floor. We believe we can get the votes to pass the Dream Act. We know we can. And um, it's really Paul Ryan's cowardice in not bringing it to the floor because they want to continue to have. Uh, to be able to bash immigrants, and this doesn't fit with their story of bashing immigrants. But I've just got news for them. Bashing immigrants does not work. I don't think it will work. It's part of what's led to the huge backlash that we were just talking about and the reason why all hands are on deck. So they're in a tough spot, and I think there are a lot of Republicans who are saying, for Pete's sake, let us pass a real solution to the Dreamers because I'm going to get hammered at home and, um, you know, and, and then all of us who are saying, look, this is a 
a critical moral issue. We right. cannot deport these kids. Um, we really have to have a real solution for them. Yeah, I mean, it's an enormously popular uh, political issue at this point, as you say, and it's also heartbreaking to see the lives of between 800,000 and a million uh, people who are Americans in all but paperwork getting kind of used as as political pawns in all of this. I know that on your reelection campaign site, the first thing that you see is a sign-up for DACA to work on behalf of DACA. So what, in your mind, what in the activist community can people be doing on behalf of DREAMers? Well, I think there's really two things. One is, you know, even if you're in a district where your lawmaker, you know, says that they agree, if they are Republicans, they need to be doing a lot more than agreeing. They need to be pushing uh, Paul Ryan. They need to be signing the discharge petition. And so, even if you're in a safe district um, uh, or in a district that where your lawmaker is doing the right thing, you need to find five people in another district where the lawmakers need to be pressured, Congress members need to be pressured to to really push for a discharge petition to bring a bill to the floor. That's number one. Number two is, I think, you know, making sure that we put out the information and get as many uh, DACA recipients to sign up as possible. Right now, it's only those that are able to renew that are eligible because of the judge's stay on the current decision. It's not new DACA recipients at this point, but if you're an existing DACA recipient, get your renewal in. Let's get that going. Um, and then, you know, I, number three is I think that there are a number of, I just spoke to a giant gathering, a uh, faith gathering of uh, 750 Unitarian ministers and lay people from around the country. People are opening up their churches with sanctuaries, their homes, and I think that there's a lot of protection and solidarity work that people could be engaging with. And I know that the immigrant rights organizations, Northwest Immigrant Rights Project, One America, others, um, National Immigrant Law Center around the country, that um, you know will put people to work in their communities to really be shelter for a lot of our immigrants. And I just want to say it's not just the 800,000. It's 1.8 million dreamers who are eligible for, for DACA, but in many situations haven't applied for, for lots of reasons. And so there's only about 800,000 that have gotten DACA status, but there's 1.8 million dreamers. And the path that we're looking for, um, the sustainable solution, is really needs to address all 1.8 million and their parents, because the dreamers really understand they have a very nuanced view of of this, um, very, uh, you know, really deep and thoughtful. And they understand they're not going to trade their freedom for the deportation of their parents. So any DACA solution that says, well, we're going to crack down on interior enforcement or deportation or increase ICE agents or, you know, shut down the family-based immigration system, those are really not solutions at all. And the DREAMers are really our leaders on this. They get that loud and clear. Well, you know, you mentioned ICE agents, and I should bring up something that you introduced in the House. It's the Dignity for Detained Immigrants Bill. Uh, I understand it has over 70 co-signers at this point. Uh, Tell us uh, a bit about this and what's going on in a lot of these detention facilities. Well, I'm really proud of this bill. It's a bill that I co-sponsored along with Adam Smith. 
and um, it's H.R. 3923, and it really would overhaul the detention system, and it's shedding light on a system that has gotten far too little attention. When I was leading One America, I did um, a report with the um, Seattle University Human Rights Center on on uh, abuses, human rights abuses within the detention centers. You know, this is an area where that has been dramatically expanding because of increased detention and increased deportation, where immigrants are getting picked up and held in these detention centers with no standards for the detention centers. Many of them, the majority of them, are contracted out to private companies, the same companies that run the prison industrial complex run the detention industrial complex, which is also, by the way, a prison industrial complex. Detention sounds nicer, but they're essentially jails. And so our bill says, first of all, um, let's take away private for-profit detention centers. And so it phases out private for-profit detention centers because nobody should be making a profit off of jailing people. Secondly, it institutes standards Um, accountable standards with sticks and carrots to detention centers to uphold um, everywhere. And if you don't meet those standards, then you don't get to operate. You don't get money and you're shut down. And then third, it eliminates things like mandatory detention that have systematically eroded the um, civil rights protections of people and the due process protections of people by not even Um, sending a a case to court. And a lot of people don't understand that the immigration system is a civil system, not a criminal system. So you don't get to have an attorney provided to you to fight your case. If you're wealthy enough and you happen to know the system enough, then maybe you can get an attorney or maybe you're lucky enough to have somebody like the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project provide pro bono legal assistance. But it's very rare. And 98% of people in the immigration system are pro se. They're unrepresented by attorneys. So there are a lot of people who end up there that should not end up there. And so we also say no more mandatory detention. And let's look at alternatives to detention because they've been proven to be very, very effective. And the people that are in detention really don't need to be in detention. They need to show up for their hearings. They need to, you know, make sure that there's some monitoring, but they don't need to be sitting in a detention center incarcerated. Um, and, you know, as part of that, part of the attention that we've gotten and now the 78 co-sponsors that we have on the bill is because there's been this new attention to women detainees. It's a growing group of people, incarcerated women, uh, incarcerated immigrant women, and the abhorrent practices of shackling of pregnant women, of not providing appropriate food and nutrition and medical assistance to women who are in detention and who are pregnant. And so our Detention for Detained Immigrants Act addresses this and um, dramatically shifts the burden of responsibility to the detention centers and not holding pregnant women uh, in the detention centers in shackles, evaluating community factors, a number of other things that would really um, address these, you know, not just injustices, but cruel and inhumane practices. Can you imagine giving birth to a child when you're shackled um, in a detention center to your bed? So that, that's some of what we're trying to address with this act, and I'm really excited that it just continues to pick up 
Momentum and co-sponsors and that groups across the country are really making this one of their top priorities for advocacy and it's showing up in their meetings with lawmakers and then we get additional co-sponsors as part of that. Well, it's tremendous work that you're doing there and and, and very necessary work. I mean, you paint a, an, an extraordinarily grim picture and it's just, it, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around the fact that this is happening in the United States in 2018. Um, and, and I also want to talk about something else that you spoke out about uh, very recently. Uh, you spoke out last week against uh, Trump's travel ban on the steps of the Supreme Court as arguments were being heard about it on the inside. Uh, and, and people who follow the court are saying that it looks like the ban may be upheld. And I'm wondering if that's the case, what your next steps will be if it is. Yeah, it would be very, very disappointing. You know, this is something that we have been fighting, and actually I started uh, my organization that I led for 12 years here in Washington State out of 9-11 and the discrimination against Muslims. At that time, it was called special registration, this effort to try to um, fingerprint and document uh, men from 25 Arab and Muslim countries deep injustices. um, And it was sort of a precursor to the Muslim ban, and, you know, we were able to end special registration, and then now we, we're fighting the Muslim ban. Um, I think it was, you know, difficult to watch the justices questioning because I think it missed the entire purpose, which is uh, of why this case has gotten so much attention and made its way to the Supreme Court, which is the president made clear his discriminatory intent with the ban through his tweets, through his statements. If the courts uphold the ban, um, then obviously we're going to have to continue to work very hard to increase the pressure on Congress to make this uh, make this um, not allowable. And Congress can pass laws. And if we take back the um, majority in November, then Democrats can, you know, say, "Look, this is a critical issue that we." We have to understand that the most important thing for us is to continue to have strong relationships, provide with Muslim with with the Muslim community around the world to make sure that we are providing opportunity and we're not discriminating against any religion of any sort. And and this is that's exactly what this ban is. So you know the courts are really unfortunately um, sort of the last stop before Congress. And as long as Republicans kind of refuse to speak out and conflate um, country of origin or religion with a broad stereotype uh, of national security terrorism, um, that's a problem. And it's a great way to suppress dissent by sort of combining national security and patriotism. But our ideals as a country, our founding values are about freedom of religion, freedom from discrimination. And we need to make sure that we continue to uphold that. And it may be that Congress has to um, has to really weigh into this clearly in order for the Supreme Court to, um, if the Supreme Court were to uphold the ban. Well, so I mean, we're talking about reasons to to flip the house, and that's that's certainly uh, key among them. Uh, another one uh, that you have talked about, and I think we're all aware of, is the coming census in 2020. Uh, and the Trump administration has signaled that in that census they would like to add a question about citizenship to the census. Um, this certainly signals uh, a great deal of fear on their part that the changing demographics of the United States are certainly not on their side, uh, and it's outright 
outrage to a lot of people. Uh, but you've said that you feel that that could backfire on Republicans. Uh, how so? Well, I do, because I think what people don't understand is we haven't had a citizenship question in, in 70 years. The, and it was taken off specifically because it was found to be a barrier and not information we need to collect as part of the census. The census determines not only what lines are drawn, which is obviously where Republicans seem to be focusing their ill-conceived efforts is to try to use this to depress turnout in areas, um, blue states across the country, which would then mean that the districts would get drawn without the participation uh, and the counting of, say, undocumented immigrants or mixed family, mixed status families um, across the country. But remember that in addition to districts, the census is used to um, attribute and apportion federal dollars. And so if in states with rapidly growing immigrant populations that may still be Republican states, you're going to see those states suffer from uh, a lack of of federal dollars or a cut in federal dollars because they didn't count all the immigrants um, that they have or all the undocumented immigrants that they have. This census count and the distribution of $700 billion in federal funding, this is funding for transportation, for housing, for services, for a whole host of things. And I think Republicans are being really um, short-sighted and losing sight of the fact that they are their districts are going to lose a lot of money if the census doesn't count everybody and if we depress participation in the census. So it will backfire on them. I think it could even backfire in the drawing of districts. But even if you were to say, okay, well, maybe they could draw some districts in a way that benefits them, the reality is they're going to lose a lot of federal dollars that get apportioned based on the census. So um, I think think it will backfire. But, you know, I also think it's just so cynically, politically – Naked. <laughs> well, sure. I, I just, yeah. I, I just feel so sad that this is what you know. This is what they're they're going to is taking a tool that, by the way, is also used by corporations to determine you know business practices and market share and all kinds of other things. There are so many uses for the census, but the most important are the constitutional questions of how you draw districts and how you apportion federal dollars. And, I mean, I think you're also alluding to a tactic generally by Republicans, which is to whip up fear of of immigrants. And I, we're, we're starting to see this play out. We've certainly seen this play out in, in special elections. Uh, if you look at Pennsylvania's uh, 18th, the special election there, uh, Rick Saccone tried to run on the one piece of legislation, major legislation that the Republicans got through uh, Congress, the tax plan. And when that didn't work, they went back to their old playbook of trying to frighten people people about, you know, the borders and immigration and the wall and all those sorts of things, Um, you know, and it's because they can't run on the tax plan. uh, I'm wondering how you are seeing that. How do you plan on talking about the tax plan on the campaign trail? Well, anybody who follows me on on Twitter, on the official side, Rep Jayapal, um, knows that this has been a mantra for me. Um, for the last year since the Republicans first started putting this tax plan together. It was a three-step dance, first transfer trillions of dollars in wealth from working people to the wealthiest, then blow up the deficit, which is exactly what's happened. A trillion dollars is what the Congressional Budget Office is projecting for next year. 
um, and then use that as uh, as a tactic to say, oh, my goodness, now we have to cut what they call entitlement programs, what I call earned benefit programs like Social Security and Medicare. And so I think that they dramatically underestimated um, the, you know, the intelligence of Americans in Republican and Democratic districts. The majority of Americans understand that this tax plan has done nothing to help them. It's only helping and benefiting the wealthiest and um, the largest corporations. And, you know, the Republicans have spent billions of dollars trying to persuade people that it's a good thing. But all of the studies, including those that come from the Wall Street Journal, show that 85 percent of all of those trillions of dollars of tax cuts have gone to the wealthiest 1% and the the biggest corporations. So regular Americans are not seeing um, the kinds of increases that they should be seeing if we were going to invest trillions of dollars into the economy. And so what happened in Pennsylvania is they tried to run on the tax bill, as you said, but people don't buy it. And so it wasn't Mm. working. And um, on the other side, you had Connor Lamb, who specifically called out Um, how ridiculous the tax bill was and what the ultimate intent was, which is to cut Social Security and Medicare. Those are incredibly popular programs across the country. People feel like they paid into Social Security as a promise that they would be taken care of after retirement. And they understand that these are the things that are um, being, you know, being threatened. Why? Because Republicans only wanted to help their biggest political donors. And so I think it's a lose-lose for the Republicans, and I think that they're trying to pour a lot of money into getting Americans to believe that the tax bill helped them. But all of the polling that I've seen says that, nope, they don't see that. And even when Barack Obama passed a tax cut that I think gave something like $718, $750 back to people, um, the majority of people did not feel like that provided a deep benefit to them. Why? Because the majority of Americans, 67% of Americans today, face so much economic instability that 67% don't even have $1,000 in their bank account to um, deal with an emergency. So these are very difficult times for everybody across the country, and the Republican tax cut was just a mean-spirited uh, you know, sort of fiesta for the rich, um, but it did nothing for working people, and they know it. They know it. That's the thing I think that that you know Republicans have to understand. I think it's it's going to be a great thing for Democrats to run on, but an unfortunate thing for us to have to run on. This should not be happening to Americans across the country. Well, if Paul Ryan's retirement is any indication, it means that uh, even the people in his district are in red Wisconsin are starting to see it that way. So it's pretty interesting. Very much so. And I think that's true of a number of Republican seats, seats that, you know, went 21 for Trump that are um, that Democrats are either winning, like in Wisconsin and places like that, Virginia, Alabama, of course, we saw that in special elections, yep. but also in places like Arizona, where that special election, even though Carol Tipperneni didn't win this time in the special election, she'll be back on the ballot in November. That's a district that went 21 for Trump, and um, she lost by five points. That's 
unheard of. Yeah, she did better in that district than any Democrat should have. And, you know, exactly. you're on the Budget Committee, and I know that uh, a lot of people are hoping that a Democratic Congress would work to repeal part or all of the GOP tax plan. But, I, you know, I'm wondering how realistic is that, uh, given the fact that, that Trump would probably not sign off on something like that? Are we probably waiting until 2020 for something like that? Well, I think the action to do what we think is right if we take the majority is different than what the result might end up being. And you never know, you know, because um, I think that, you know, this is so deeply unpopular that I think the Democrats must put forward a plan that rolls back the tax cuts as they were given and puts the money where we would want to put it, which would be things like infrastructure investment and reforming the tax system so it's simpler, but so that we actually close the loopholes on corporations and we keep jobs on Main Street instead of shipping them out um, to other parts of the country, where uh, to other parts of the world where there are tax havens for corporations. So I do think we have to show a contrast, and we could probably pass some of those changes through the House. You're right that depending on what happens in the Senate, um, you know, it may be uh, challenging to get Trump to sign it, but I think we've got to show the contrast between what Democrats stand for and what Trump and Republicans did, because the tax plan is very unpopular. So this is a chance for us to really show the contrast. And um, even if Trump refuses to sign it, which I just wonder if we could generate enough enthusiasm and excitement around a real investment plan in America and in working Americans and, and the poor, um, maybe he would be forced to. But even if he doesn't get forced to, it sets up the contrast. So I think it's essential for us to do that as a Democratic Party if we take back the majority. And you're talking about ways that the the Democrats ultimately can be an effective opposition party if they take back the, if God willing, when they take back the uh, the House. And there's even talk of uh, the possibility uh, of a Senate takeover at this point. So we'll see. Um, you know, thinking about how that dynamic would change things in Washington and the balance of power. Uh, I know that you get a lot of questions from your constituents. You get something like, you've had something like 300,000 correspondences from your constituents, which is just amazing. Uh, But the number one thing that you get asked is, will you work to impeach Donald Trump? Um, And Trump is now trying to frighten and whip up his base into action by saying that if Democrats flip Congress, they will impeach him. I know that you have joined a motion to impeach. Do you worry at all about that playing into his narrative? Well, I've joined a motion to have a discussion on hearings, uh, on impeachment, and to bring, oh, okay. Okay. Um, bring that to the floor. So that was the floor motion that we discussed, uh, that we voted on. I've also signed on to articles of impeachment that were introduced by Steve Cohen from Tennessee, who serves on the Judiciary Committee with me. Um, I will tell you that, you know, um, it has been a great opportunity to try to educate my constituents and people across the country about how this process should work. How do you hold somebody accountable who clearly has conflicts of interest, who clearly You know, there's increasing evidence around collusion with Russians and interference uh, in our elections by foreign governments. And yet the Judiciary Committee has yet to have a single hearing on any of this. And so that is really the path that would would need to happen. We're waiting for Robert Mueller 
to issue his reports, but it certainly seems like he's gotten something like 21 indictments of Trump campaign officials and people who connected to the campaign. The news seems to be tightening. Now there's a real investigation into some of the monetary um, uh, issues of the campaign. And I will tell you that I think there's real corruption going on in this administration and real um, fleecing of the American people. And we have constitutional protections and the emoluments clause in our constitution specifically designed to stop foreign governments from influencing uh, our president and also to ensure that um, public monies are, you know, that these platforms are used for public good. And so we need to have hearings on these questions. Will it ultimately lead to impeachment or not? I, I don't know. I think it depends on all of the evidence that comes out. But certainly I think that it has been clear to me from what I have seen without the ability for us to question people without the ability for the Judiciary Committee to do its work, that there is clear um, uh, violations of the Emoluments Clause and that there is clear profiting off of public resources, public lands, contracts that were given to the Trump uh, companies. And so that's the work that we need to do if we take back the House. Will it lead to impeachment? I really don't know. It certainly looks like it should to me without the ability to have hearings. But let's have those hearings and let's discuss it. Right. Well, I mean, and of of course, I think most of the people listening uh, agree that there are ample grounds to impeach Trump. But I guess I'm wondering if you worry that, you know, it seems like the one card that he has left to play at this point, given the fact that the tax plan isn't isn't really working out as a campaign issue, is fear of impeachment. And so I'm wondering how you treat that as a as a campaign issue? Well, I think that, um, you know, I think it's just really pointing out to people that there's a process, that Democrats don't just take back the House and impeach. That's what Trump wants people to believe, that Democrats will take back the House and just impeach the president. But I think, you know, we just have to continue to call that out as a red herring in the same way that we call out immigrant bashing as a red herring. Um, in the same way that we call out any benefits of the tax plan as a red herring. And so we have to do the work to educate people that that's just not how impeachment happens. You have to, you know, you have to go through. And if you look at the Nixon impeachment, um, you know, that took several years. Now, if you look at the way Republicans uh, uh, went about Clinton's impeachment, I suppose you could make the argument that that could happen again. There was really very little process there. But um, I think that these are very, very serious issues about the constitutionality of what is happening and our demo- the core principles of our democracy. And so people just need to understand that they're going to try to throw out red herrings. I don't really think it's a compelling um, argument for anybody except the 30 percent that he's already talking to. Sure. Um, so I think we don't need to we don't need to um, emphasize that as a campaign issue. But we should explain to people that what they're saying just isn't the way it's going to happen. It's not like Democrats take over the majority and then suddenly, you know, impeach the president. As much as there are many people across the country, and certainly in my district, yeah. who would like <laughs> to have that be the case. But that's just not the process. It's just not the process. And we should just laugh in their face every time they say it because it's just not how it happens. Well, and of course, uh, the other uh, part of the equation is that you need two-thirds of the Senate to convict. And that's certainly not looking like that will happen, even if the Democrats 
take back the Senate. So, Unless there is significant continued um, information about how, how he is colluded with the Russians, his campaign colluded with the Russians. I mean, there are real issues here. Or unless he you know, were to fire Robert Mueller, like he, he has to be very careful as he plays this impeachment narrative, because at the same time, if he does things that once again are clear violations of his uh, prerogative and his authority, um, you know, like firing Robert Mueller or Jeff Sessions or Rod Rosenstein, then we've got real problems on our hands. That is a constitutional crisis. Well, you know, last week the Senate Judiciary Committee approved legislation to protect Robert Mueller, uh, even though Mitch McConnell said he won't bring it to the floor. Uh, you know, I'm wondering, because you sit on the House Judiciary Committee, were you surprised by what the Senate panel did? And do you feel like this effectively sent a message to Trump? You know, to be honest, I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner by both chambers of the House. That's such a clear, nonpartisan thing to do. Um, so I'm happy that the Senate Judiciary Committee did that. Um, and, you know, and I can, uh, I can just say that the same day that they passed that out of committee, that legislation out of committee, the House Judiciary Committee was having political theater in the House by bringing, by essentially having a hearing that said, it was technically supposed to be about Facebook, but it was uh, it was that Facebook is somehow pushing uh, a, a liberal agenda and silencing conservatives. And they brought diamond and silk to African-American women who have been very supportive of the Trump campaign and claiming that they've been censored. And uh, it was just a, a, a theater. And I was mm. embarrassed, really deeply embarrassed that that is the state of the House Judiciary Committee, the committee that is supposed to be really upholding our Constitution and our laws. So um, I do think it sends a very clear message to Donald Trump, um, and hopefully it will, uh, you know, sort of empower and embolden more Republicans, both in the Senate and in the House, to step up and say, look, there are certain things that are important to us, and even if we fear being unelected by our constituents, our responsibility is to justice and not to power. And that is really what we should be thinking about as we're here. Absolutely. And, you know, that you talk about another reason for flipping the House. Uh, it would be the handing over of the gavel in the House Judiciary Committee and others that you sit on. And so uh, maybe we wouldn't have to put up with uh, so much grandstanding and political theater by the Republicans. So that would be a that's yet another reason for us to, to work to flip the House in November. So, as I said, you are home this week. Uh, you are hosting a town hall on Wednesday, May 2nd at the Seattle Public Library. Um, um, as we know, not all Washington state lawmakers hold regular town halls. Uh, some, in fact, hold none at all, as is the case with uh, the 8th District representative where I am. Um, talk about the importance of holding town halls to you. Well, it's just so important. And I've been in office 15 months. I've held 15 in-person and telephone town halls. We've talked with over 15,000 people because we Facebook live stream our town halls as well. And so I really hope that everybody who's here comes out to the town hall um, on Wednesday uh, at the Seattle Public Library downtown. But the reason it's important is because, look, I think that part of our job as elected officials is to try to help people understand what the system is, how it should be responding to them, how it's not responding to them, for us to understand that as elected officials, and then to share information about what's happening on both sides, to hear concerns, and to just be able to put a human face to your representative, because 
too many people think it's not relevant, you know, that, that Congress or these elected officials um, and, and democracy in that sense is not relevant to them. But we see how relevant it is by the 2016 election. And I think our job is to really try to help bring more people into the conversation, discuss these issues, share what we know, hear what we don't know, um, and really engage people so that they have a direct connection to democracy, because that's what we are. We we work for people. We are elected by people, and we work for people. Every time people come into my office, I say, welcome to your office, because it's their mm. office. It's not my office. I just happen to sit there and occupy the seat right now, but only if it's benefiting and responding to and answering the needs of the district. So I love town halls. I love talking to people. I'm not afraid of my constituents. There are people who disagree with me at the town hall sometimes. Um, we have Trump supporters that come to the town halls and, you know, are very, very anti-immigrant and will ask me a question about that, and I will take it on because that's my job, too. I don't just represent the people who agree with me. I represent the people who don't agree with me. But at the end of the day, I um, look at all of that feedback and then make the decision about where I am and I stay true to who I am as a person, and I think that's why people elected me, because they hoped that I would have the experience and the knowledge to deal with these very, very complex questions and show leadership on things that really matter to us as a human society. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is a balancing act, I would imagine. But at the end of the day, the job is called representative. And, uh, and, and I know that you take that very seriously, which is one of the many reasons why you're so enormously popular in your district. Um, so as I said at the top, you just launched your reelection campaign. You have a number of volunteer opportunities on your website for people to get involved. Uh, what do you need help with? Oh, my goodness. What we really want is for people to get engaged. We will train you up if you have particular skills in communications or, um, you know, if you've never done door knocking but you're game and you're willing. It's just such a fabulous privilege to be able to talk to people for a few minutes and hear what's on their mind and reflect that. And so we're asking people to sign up to help us um, win back the House um, and to really make sure that we're raising the issues. We'll have um, you know, initiatives on the ballot. But I think across the country, we're not just engaging in Washington. We have opportunities to get engaged on issues, initiatives, and campaigns across the country. And so um, really what we're looking for is people who are willing to give their time and their energy and use their connections and really help us to move forward on the issues and also on on, uh, on the election. So um, encourage people to not feel boxed in by one thing. I know I've sometimes had people who are like, I'm terrified to go out on the doors. I can't do it. And then they <laughs> actually go out and they love it. Or they realize, okay, I don't have to go out on the doors. I'm an incredible tech person and I can really help with communications materials. Or, you know, I really want to um, help push out some really simple uh, fact, fact sheets around immigration or climate change or whatever. So there's room for everybody. Yep. And the most important thing is we need the energy and we want people to sign up so we can help train you, get you the resources you need, and then put your skills to work. Well, uh, there's a job for everybody, it sounds like. And, and as I said, and I think people listening already know this, uh, this is an all-hands-on-deck moment. And the website is PramillaForCongress.com. I will make sure that that is available on the SoundCloud page as well as at IndivisiblePodcast.org, gang. So check that out there. But Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you so much and uh, keep up the great work. 
thank you so much. Thank you for the always incredibly thoughtful questions and wide approach and um, for getting all of this information out. It's how we build our democracy. Let us end this week with a dose of good news. That always seems appropriate, which, hey, sucks that we keep needing it, but uh, it's nice to be reminded that good things are happening, right? So I will start by reiterating something that I spoke about with the Congresswoman, and that is the fact that D.C. District Court Judge John Bates said last week, in so many words, that the Trump administration had to restart the DACA program. They have to grant current recipients work permits, and they have to start accepting new applications. But as I said, the judge stayed his ruling for 90 days, so we absolutely need a DREAM Act now contact your member of Congress about that. In other court action here in Washington, Spokane to be exact, a federal judge issued a permanent injunction blocking the Trump administration from defunding a Planned Parenthood program that funds teen pregnancy prevention programs across the country. And actually, last week in the other Washington, D.C., a judge ruled that the cuts the administration planned to the teen pregnancy programs were actually illegal. Oh, and one more to mention, in Chicago, a 7th district judge said that Indiana's 2016 ban on, quote, selective abortions is unconstitutional. This rebuke is particularly on point since the governor of Indiana at the time was none other than Mike Pence. And finally, Wells Fargo is being ordered to pay $1 billion in fines for abuses tied to its mortgage and auto lending businesses dating back to 2009, which happened to be the same year they got that big bailout for mortgage abuses dating back from before 2009. Oh, Wells Fargo, will you ever stop sucking? Oh, and this isn't even related to their $100 million fine after we learned that its employees opened over 3.5 million bank and credit card accounts with Without getting customers' authorization. I sure do wish I could quit you, Wells Fargo. Oh, wait, I totally did. And probably everyone else should too. So there you have it. That is this week's dose of good news. And that'll do it for this week's show. Hey, by the way, dear listener, I have got a survey up on the site. It is a quick one. It'll take you about a minute, literally. It's six questions. And it'll really help me to determine what you would like to hear more of on the show. So I'd love it if you could take a minute and fill it out. It is on the SoundCloud page, and it is also at indivisiblepodcast.org. And that is where you can also find out more about the show. And you can subscribe to have it delivered to your email inbox. And speaking of email, the email for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org podcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at Indivisible Pod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. Thank you again to my guest, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Special thanks to Omer Farouk and Ansel Hertz. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. <laughs>